Amen. Thank you, Pastor Chad, Sister Brittany, Sister Amy. Beautiful song. It's good to have Sister Jessica Short back here from college, second year at Gardner-Webb. And not only that, she's brought some of her very pleasant, delightful friends from down there at Gardner-Webb. I'm sorry, ladies, I realized the outcome of the game wasn't quite what you were hoping. And I felt bad because you were greeted in such a stormy reception here in Winston-Salem. We really are friendly people. But, but I do want to thank you all for coming to be here this morning. It blesses my heart when I see college students wanting to be in church, worshiping God. And we welcome you. And we want you to know that we pray for Jessica, but we also pray for all of you too. Pray for all of our college students and just thank God for them. And, uh, and I want to thank you too because actually uh, y'all's graciousness in allowing Wake Forest to win last night <laughs> provided me with the only opportunity this season I'll have to wear my Wake Forest tie. I looked at the schedule and I said, well, this is it. So this will be the only win we'll get when I looked and saw Florida State and some of those other schools on there. But you know, in, in sports, whether it be football or whether it be basketball, you know, sometimes when a team gets rattled and maybe they're not winning, they're behind and they go into the locker room and, and oftentimes the sports reporter sticks the microphone in the face of the coach, you know, that's, that's behind and, you know, he wants to knock them over the head with something. But, but they're gracious and they go ahead and give a little brief interview and, and they'll ask the obvious question, Coach, what's the matter? <laughs> what do you think the problem is? And, you know, I would say, duh, we're losing. <laughs> but they, you know, very, you know, meticulously will, will say, well, we, we've just gotten out of our game plan. That's all we need to do is get back on our game plan and then we'll be okay. And then do, you know, most teams uh, have a game plan, whether it be in basketball or football, where they go into the game. They know the strategy that they want to implement that will enable them to be victorious, uh, supposedly, theoretically anyway. Um, it would help if you have good players. But the fact is, sometimes you get away from that game plan and you can find yourself in a very precarious situation. But you know, the church has a game plan. And has, from the very beginning, all the way back to the Acts chapter 2, at the day of Pentecost, when Jesus said, even before in the Gospel of Matthew, I, I will build my church, He had a game plan, a strategy whereby the church would be the body of Christ and would go about its God-given mandate of making disciples of all the world. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Folks, that's the game plan. It was then and it is now. Jesus re-articulated that game plan just prior to His ascension into heaven. You may recall in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 when He told those early disciples, followers, and He's saying it to you and me. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you, you can plug your name in there, Charlie or Ethel or Bob or whatever. You can plug your name in there. And he says, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part 
of the earth, or the end of the earth, depending upon the translation you read. So, as we continue in the book of Acts, the historical recollection of the life of the early church, and, and Luke is writing this so wonderfully for us. He's already given us his gospel, but now he's given us the historical record of our spiritual ancestors. So that we can see how it was done then, and we can understand how it needs to happen now. And so as you turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, and we'll pick up in chapter 11, where we left off last time as I continue this series in the book of Acts. And we'll begin in chapter 19. And what we're seeing, folks, is a miracle in the making. We're witnessing the birth of the Gentile element of the church up until now. The church has been predominantly Jewish Christians, heavily influenced by Palestinian culture and Hebrew language and the Jewish culture, if you will. But God has a plan. And we're seeing that plan unfold. And so we see here in chapter 11, verse 19, that the Gentiles are beginning to respond to the gospel message. You may recall in chapter 10, when God led Peter up to Caesarea, Peter had the privilege of sharing the gospel with a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius. And Cornelius and all of his household accepted the gospel, received Jesus Christ, were wonderfully and gloriously saved. And as wonderful as that event is, that's just the beginning of the story. And we're going to see this story beginning to unfold now. The Gentiles are responding to the gospel message of grace. Let's read verses 19 and 20 there in chapter 11. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. Now that's significant. But, verse 20, some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, that would be the Greek-speaking Gentiles, preaching the Lord Jesus. I want you to see that the Lord raises up suitable messengers to extend the gospel. The Lord will always have messengers to carry the good news of the gospel where He intends for it to go. It could be you. It could be me. We talked about Wendy going as our representative up to Detroit. She was, a, she was sent with a message, whether she was serving food to needy people or helping with the reconstruction of homes. Listen, she had a message deep in her heart, and I promise you, she and all the other volunteers, every opportunity they had would share the gospel with those who were lost. And they were working in an area that was had a high concentration of Muslims. She'll tell you that. But the dispersion of the church opens the door for the gospel. You remember when Stephen, the first martyr of the church, we saw that back in chapter 8 in the book of Acts where Stephen was, was killed because of his faith and there was great persecution promoted by one Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee who was breathing threats against the church. He hated the cause of Christ and so he was spearheading the persecution against the church. God used the persecution of the Christians in Jerusalem to disperse them, to spread them out, to get them on their way to carry out the, the mission that He had given the church. And so we see these Christians that are traveling. Primarily, these are the Greek-speaking Christians. That's why they call them the Hellenists. 
They were out being dispersed into other areas. And I thought it was interesting. You follow the pattern of the, of the spread of Christianity and remember Acts chapter 1 verse 8 where Jesus says, You will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea, primarily Jewish areas. And then he said, And all Samaria. You remember in chapter 8 when Philip been uh, fleeing from persecution. He and many other Christians went up into the area of Samaria. And what did he do? He preached the gospel. And many of the Samaritans began to receive Christ. And so there was a great movement there. But then it didn't stop there because the Holy Spirit took Philip from up in Samaria all the way down on a trade route where he encountered an Ethiopian eunuch a man of political power and prestige in, in Africa, in, in Ethiopia. And he was on his way home. He was a God seeker. And, and Philip shared with him the truth of the gospel. And, and, and the gospel was planted in his heart and he made his way on back home. But then the Spirit of God wasn't finished then. You remember the Spirit of God took Philip from there and transported him, kind of like Star Wars, all the way over to the coastal region of, of Israel on the Mediterranean coast. And there in Astos, he began to spread the gospel and take it all the way up that coastal region, some 15 miles, you might say, along the coast. And, 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 he, and there he encountered cities like Ashdod and Joppa and, and sharing the gospel. So the gospel is continuing to spread. Then in chapter 10, you may recall where Peter, as I said, had the opportunity to share the gospel with the Gentile Cornelius and he and his family and the household received the gospel. So, so the gospel is on the march. Now I want you to see something and understand that just as, as the Spirit preserves the message, and folks that's important to understand, the gospel message never changes. It's the same. It was the very same message that Jesus gave to his disciples that they in turn preached as they went out into the world and the gospel message is the same today because it's right out of the Word of God. God doesn't need for man in his intelligence and all of his improvisations and all of his improvements and all of his, his knowledge to improve the message of the gospel. It's the same for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth upon him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now God preserves the message but he adapts the delivery. There will be changes along the way. And, and, and I want you to see how this was transpiring even as the disciples were moving forth out of Jerusalem through Samaria and, and now to further regions. You'll notice that as they were believing, and it says that they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch preaching the word to no one but the Jews. But I think it's important to see the, the geography because as they're moving up the coastline, if you've got a Bible in the back of your, uh, if you've got a map in the back of your Bible and it pinpoints some of those, those cities and you can see the progression of the gospel as it moves up the coastline from one, one city to the other, from Tyre to Sidon to Seraphim and, and, and moving on up. And then as it moves up the coastline, then some of those disciples, they tell us here in verse 19, they jump over to the island of Cyprus, which is a hundred miles off the coast uh, of Syria and so there they're planting the gospel and, and the gospel continues to spread and move and, 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 and go outward as the scripture says it was but then the, the gospel is going these are disciples going as, 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 as 
Captain James Kirk on Starwork boldly going where no disciple has ever gone before. They're going further north now. And if you're looking on, in the back of your Bible at a map, you'll see that, that the city of Antioch is, is, is 200 miles to the north. They've never taken the gospel so far away from Jerusalem. But you see, the Spirit is propelling them. And not only is he taking them all the way up there to Antioch, and, and Antioch is not a small, insignificant village at that time. Antioch is the third largest city in the whole Roman Empire. Folks, they didn't show up there just by accident. They were there by providence. God placed those disciples there with the message of the gospel strategically to further the kingdom of God. And so here they are, looking, just imagine those early disciples. They're coming from Cyprus, the island, and these are Greek-speaking Christians. They're Hellenists. They understand the Greek language. They speak it. They understand the Greek culture. They understand the nature of the city of Antioch. They realize that not only is it one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire, but it is known for its commerce, it's known for its culture, it's known for its pagan worship practices, including sexual immorality. They understand that this is a place that desperately needs to hear the gospel. And so which Christian disciples does the Lord put in Antioch? He puts the Christians who understand the culture, the Christians who understand the language, the Christians who can, can, can tell people about Jesus Christ. And here they are. I just tried to imagine. Here they are standing on a bluff overlooking this massive megaplex of Antioch. And they're thinking, wow, we, we are a long way from home. Probably one disciple looks at the others and, and, and says, do you suppose this is what Jesus meant when he said, you'll, take, you'll be my witness to the remotest part of the earth? I think about one time on one of our missions trips to Kenya, Africa. This is, I believe, my first trip, 1997. And we had finished our about two weeks of working out in the fields in a very rural, uh, primitive area of Kenya, Africa. And, and we were all coming back, not only our team, but teams from all over the country of Africa, volunteer missions teams, are all coming back to Nairobi, the capital, and, and we were going to report back. Remember, Mark, it was at the conference center, Brackenhurst. And, and so all these mission teams were coming back in after having been out there in the field, sharing the gospel, evangelizing, and doing all kinds of missions work, coming back, getting ready to go home, come homeward. And I'll, remember, I'll never forget, you know, all of us were tired. I mean, my goodness, it was grueling. All of us were fatigued. All of us were a little bit homesick. But I'll never forget this one team that came straggling in there. My goodness, just the look on their faces told me they had really been through the mill. And, and so they began to share their account how from the very beginning they got assigned to one of the most rural, primitive parts of Kenya. There were not even roads. They had to kind of cut trails and how they spent so much time because it was a rainy season. Their jeeps and their, their vans were mired down to the axle in mud and they were up to their knees in mud. They slept in mud. They had rain pouring down on them. And they says they were so far up into the reaches of Kenya, they said they declared, they looked and saw a sign hanging from the tree saying you have arrived at the remotest part of the world. And I'm thinking these disciples as they arrive in, in Antioch are thinking this is it. 
We've come further than anybody has come with the good news of the gospel. But praise the Lord God, the Spirit of God, rewards His faithful witnesses with fruitful results. Look with me in verse 20. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And look at verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. You know, I'm sure in the back of their mind, they're going into a territory they're not familiar with. They are sharing a message that people have never heard. One of the most pagan cities in the Roman Empire. I'm sure they're thinking, are we going to get beheaded? Are we going to get thrown in jail? You know, they didn't know. But they were stepping out on faith. And then God stepped in. God stepped in. That's the important thing to remember. That God never puts His people in places of ministry and service. That He will not equip them. And He will not work through them. God is faithful. He was faithful then. And He is faithful now. And it says the hand of the Lord was with them. In the scripture, when that term, the hand of the Lord, is used, it's usually used in two ways. Either it's used as God's judgment upon the people, or God's blessings upon the people. And of course, as we read the text, you see that it was God's blessing upon these witnesses who were going to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you'll also notice that they adapted the message to the people. You'll notice that in verse 20, it doesn't, it doesn't say that they went preaching Christ Jesus. It's not that they were ashamed of the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. It's the fact that in a Greek culture, that meant nothing to these people. They did to the Jews because the Jews were looking for the Messiah. The Jews were anticipating the Messiah. So it was a big deal to the Jews that, that the disciples preached Jesus as the Christ, the long-awaited and prophesied Messiah. But these Gentile, or, or these Greek-speaking Christian witnesses, they spoke of Jesus as Lord. Lord Jesus. And you better believe in a Gentile Roman culture, the term Lord meant a great deal. They understood the authority and the power that went with that title. So they were preaching the Lord Jesus and many people received because the Spirit of God was working in the hearts of the people. The hand of God was upon them. He was blessing them. And, and, and it's important that these, these witnesses were faithful, they were equipped, but they were watchful. They were watchful. They were looking for the signs. And so should we. One of the best illustrations we have of that is in John chapter 4. You remember when Jesus led his disciples up into the forbidden territory of the Samaritans? No self-respecting Jew would be caught socializing, walking through Samaria, much less talking to them. And here's Jesus talking to and, and, and showing compassion with a Samaritan woman. But then when he told her the things about herself that she thought nobody knew, especially this Jewish stranger. And she, he began to tell her about the living water that he would provide for her spiritual thirst, whereby she would never be thirsty again. 
and he invited her to drink deeply of this well of living water that he gave. Oh, listen, she knew she was in the presence of holiness. She knew that this was not an ordinary man. And so in John chapter 4, it tells us that this woman ran back to, into the city and she gathered up people and says, do you suppose that he is a, the Messiah? And, and as the people came out, we're told there in chapter 4 and verse 29, she told the people, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And then they went out of the city and came to him. Now Jesus is talking to his disciples as all of this multitude are coming out from the city. But listen to what Jesus says to his disciples in verse 35 of that chapter. He says, do, not, do you not say there's still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white with harvest. Jesus was teaching his disciples then that in order for us to be effective as we go forth to take the witness, it's good to be equipped. It's important that we rely upon the Lord. But as God's people, as disciples, as we move forth out of our Jerusalem, out of our Judea, as we encounter the lost and unsaved and broken around us, Jesus is saying, lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes. He says, sure, the, the, the agricultural harvest won't be ready for four more months. But he told his disciples, just lift up your eyes, fellas. Look over the hill there. Look and see the multitude of people that this one Samaritan woman is bringing to you. The harvest is ready. It's white. It's, it's here. And, and the time is now. Why do I put emphasis upon that? Because I think so many of us as Christians get preoccupied. We get preoccupied with our own personal lives, our social lives, our jobs, our school, our friends, our families. Hey, we can even get too preoccupied with church work. That we don't lift up our eyes. I want to invite you this morning to, to be a watchful disciple. Don't just go out, but be willing to raise up your eyes above your own circumstances and above the circumstances of the world. See the lost people all around you, whether it be in your workplace or in your school campus or your neighborhood. Listen, Jesus said it then, He's saying it now. The fields are white unto harvest. And we must be dedicated to the mandate of the Master, and that is to take the good news. And listen, that's what these early disciples did as they entered into the city of Antioch. Look at verse 22. Man, things are rocking and rolling up there in, in Antioch. It says that the people believed and turned to the Lord. Don't overlook that phrase. Because the devil and the demons believe... For a person to truly receive Jesus Christ and to walk by faith as a follower of Christ and to be truly born again, you've got to turn. You've got to turn. The word repent in the Bible means to turn around. It's not just good enough to give mental consent. Oh yes, I believe that Jesus was God's Son. I believe that He had some great things to say and He was a holy man. I believe all that. And then you continue walking in sin. Folks, that's not conversion. That's not what it means to be born again. Listen, these people believe the message of the gospel, but look what it says. And they turn. What did they turn from? 
They turned from paganism. They turned from idolatry. They turned their backs on sexual immorality. They turned from wickedness and greed and all the things that are encompassed in a pagan life. They turned their back on paganism and walked directly towards Jesus Christ wholeheartedly as their Lord and Savior. Let me ask you, have you turned? Have you turned? You can hear a message and you can believe in your mind and say, oh yes, I, I don't have a problem with that. But have you come under conviction of the fact that you're lost and you need Jesus Christ and you're willing to make Him the Lord and the Master of your life and to live every day? Folks, Christianity is 24-7. It's not just seven, uh, just Sundays. It's not just Easter. It's not just Christmas. Let me tell you something. It's 24 hours, seven days a week. Jesus has to be the Lord and the Master of your life. Otherwise, He's nothing at all. And they turned. Wow! Now, they didn't have cell phones. They didn't have text. No emails. But the Word got back to Jerusalem over 200 miles away. But the Word got back to Jerusalem because that's where the mother church was. That's where the head honchos were. The apostles. You have to say that with a little pious holiness, the apostles, Peter and James and John. Now when it got back, and look at verse 22, what did they say? Oh no, we've got competition now. Those blasted Gentiles are going to take over everything. We've got to nip it in the bud, like Barney Fife would say. Oh no, 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 let's look how the Spirit is working at the mother church too. Verse 22, then the news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch, Barnabas. Hmm. That name sounds familiar. And it should because it was only back in chapter 4 that you were introduced to this Hellenist. Hellenist? Christian? From the island of Cyprus. See, I believe the apostles knew what they were doing but they didn't send James or John or Peter. They said, we need to send one of our guys up there that we trust who understands the people? Who better than the one whose name meant son of encouragement? And so they elected and sent Barnabas all the way up to Antioch. And look at verse 23. When he came and had seen what? The grace of God. Not flashy preachers. Not big buildings. Not banners of crusades. No, no, no. He saw the grace of God poured out upon wicked pagan Gentiles who were now praising the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, this was like saying, sick them to a hound dog to Barnabas. He said, oh my goodness, let's roll up our sleeves. Hallelujah, a revival is breaking out here. Well, I'm paraphrasing, but you get the gist of the, of, of the whole climax of what was going on there. And Barnabas came there and, and in verse 23, when he had came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad. I think that's an understatement. I think he was absolutely hilarious. I believe if Barnabas could have done cartwheels, he would have been flipping a few right there through the streets of Why? He was so glad. And what did he do? And he encouraged them all. And that's, you would expect that, wouldn't you? From a man whose name meant son of encouragement, he's, he's not up there like some of us. Well, wait a minute. Which version of the Scriptures are they using? I notice these people are coming to worship and they're not wearing a tie. Uh, you know, I don't know the songs they're singing. I'm not so sure. No! 
He saw the grace of God. He saw the work of God. He said, right on, boys. Keep on preaching the Word. Keep on teaching the Word. And so Barnabas immerses himself into this wonderful, dynamic, Holy Spirit movement up there in Antioch. And he encouraged them that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. Verse 24, For he was a good man, full of Holy Spirit and faith. Stop. Wouldn't you like for that to be in the Bible about you? I mean, just somewhere. I don't care if they put it back in the book of Hezekiah. You know, just somewhere. And Charlie Martin was a good man and full of faith. I mean, it's there for all of history, for every language. People will say, you know that Barnabas? He was a good man. He was an encourager. He was so... Why did they put it there? Because he was. And God used that kind of a person to propel the the work of the gospel. And it goes on to say in verse 24, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Man, what an exciting time. But then verse 25, Barnabas leaves. He He leaves. I guess the people were saying, no, Barnabas, where are you going? We need you. But why did he leave? Well, I think it's important because we see that Barnabas has a plan. In verse 26 of 25, then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. Saul of Tarsus. Barnabas had been good to Saul. He had introduced and represented Saul of Tarsus after his conversion. He kind of calmed the nerves of the Jerusalem church to say, okay, okay, okay. I know he was the persecutor. But he's encountered the Lord. I believe it. He, God uses Barnabas in a powerful way to launch the ministry of, of, of Saul. Now, Saul had, had been threatened in Jerusalem, you remember, and he went back to his hometown of Tarsus. We don't know exactly what happened. There was a few years. But I got a feeling he was studying the Word of God, preparing his heart, witnessing. Hey, listen, when Saul of Tarsus went back to his hometown, probably to his family, there's a good likelihood that he was probably thrown out of the family. They probably disowned him if he didn't get them converted because they were probably very devout Jews. We don't know the losses that Saul suffered, but the fact is Barnabas is looking for him. And the term that the Greek uses there to seek Saul is a term that uniquely is used to emphasize a, a great effort by somebody trying to find another person. So it wasn't like he Barnabas went to Tarsus and, and he got off the boat and there was a big billboard and it had a big old bold red arrow saying, this way to Saul. And then you walk down the road a little bit and there's a big tent and a, saw, and a big banner with blinking lights. Saul of Tarsus. Saul, right here. No. The, it, the implication is Barnabas was having to hunt Saul down. He was, he was going from one place because Saul was moving around. And he was going to say, hey, have, show him a picture. Have you seen this man? <laughs> I, I don't think they have. He maybe etched his face. I don't know. But he's probably going to uh, village after village. I'm looking for this man. I'm describing Saul. I've I got to find this man. Have you seen this Saul of Tarsus? Have you seen Saul? Is anybody? Finally, he finds him and he brings him back to Antioch because Barnabas has a plan. And the plan is to indoctrinate the people to Teach them solid doctrine. And that's what Barnabas is doing with Saul back there in Antioch. Look at verse 26. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught 
a great many people and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Let me tell you something. Can you imagine? Just, just try to imagine being a part of First Baptist. And if you're not a Baptist, you can be First Presbyterian or First Methodist. But that first church of Antioch, pastor Barnabas, son of encouragement, associate pastor Saul of Tarsus, and soon his name would change to Paul. But can you imagine sitting under the teaching of Barnabas and Saul for a whole year? Were these people equipped or what? Talking about discipleship on steroids. They were pumped. They had all the solid teaching. And that's why the church at Antioch was such an instrumental church in the expansion of the kingdom of God. But then it also says that the, Christ, the disciples were first called Christians. How many of y'all are Christians? Okay, I, I'm just, I didn't look specifically. But if you're not a Christian, I want to see you after the service. I really do. I want to share Christ with you. I want you to be saved and enjoy the eternal life that Christ offers so freely through His sacrificial death on the cross. But, but for those of you, how many times do people say, what are you? You say, oh, I'm, I'm a bulldog. I'm a deacon. I, I'm a Republican. I'm a Democrat. I, you know, how, how many of us take so for granted the term Christian? You know, when, when, in, in my commentaries, kind of got in an argument here. One said that the term Christian was, was actually a term of derision, kind of like a ridicule, like them old Christians. But then one says, no, no, it was actually a term that was given by the Gentiles, the, the unbelievers, to describe the new Gentile believers. What are you going to call them? They're not pagans anymore. So they came up with this term, Christian, which means Christ followers. Those who identify with Christ. So whether the term was a term of derision or a term of identity, it's very important for you to understand that as the church marches on in years to come and in those early centuries, as the church marches on, that term Christian would, would be converted from being either a term of derision or just identity to being a badge of honor. For the disciples to be able to refer to each other and, and boldly hold up their head out in a secular pagan society and say, I am a Christian. Dr. John MacArthur in his commentary was speaking of the historian Eusebius and he recounts how one of the early church martyrs by the name of Sanctus, when he was being tortured and just about ready to be killed, he was being grueled and questioned by his torturers. And, and the only thing that Sanctus would say over and over to their grueling questions was, I am a Christian. I am a Christian. He died saying, I am a Christian. Oh, listen. God helped the pacified believers of the 21st century who cower under the intimidation of political correctness and social movements and government oppression. Let me tell you something. God helped pacified believers, young and old, who for whatever reason are ashamed when asked the question, are you a believer? Yeah, yeah I believe in God. <laughs> Who's the 
last time given the opportunity, you held your head up and looked them square in the eye and said, I am a Christian. I am a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm proud of it. I don't mean to be arrogant and look down your nose. No. But certainly don't retreat into cowardice and be ashamed of the One who died for us. Hallelujah. Verse 27, we're wrapping up. Heading downhill, folks. What is the response of this new church? How, how, you know, how would you know, other than hearing them profess, we are Christians, how would you know that they have radically been changed? That they are different? So I've set you up. That's a rhetorical question. If you're, looking, if you're reading ahead of me, just say, I know. <laughs> hold on, hold on. And in those days, verse 27, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. And remember, God was given sign gifts unique to the early church age. Some people were given the gifts of, of tongues. They could speak foreign languages that they'd never experienced before to communicate the gospel, such as the day of Pentecost. Some people were given the gifts of healing. They could miraculously heal people. Why? Some of the apostles were given the gift of raising the dead. And there were individuals that God's Spirit uniquely blessed with the gift of prophecy, foretelling. Not Nostradamus, but a man by the name of Agabus. You don't find too many people naming their son Agabus. You can call him Aggie, but then you're getting confused with the technical schools. But anyway... Agabus. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they did, also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul, their pastor and associate pastor. Do you remember? As we look at the, the church, and the church is now, this new, brand new baby church is beginning to reach out. They're reaching out with a spirit of generosity. And you remember in, cha in chapter 4 of Acts when the church first began in Jerusalem? Do you remember the spirit that existed amongst those early believers? That spirit of generosity? Sure you do. Hadn't been that long ago. They were selling their possessions. They were selling their land. All the Christians are the believers and they were putting in all their money together and they were making sure that every member of the church who needed something was taken care of. What a, what a spirit. What a spirit of generosity. I just wonder what would happen at Cornerstone if the Spirit of God just got a hold of us. And people started bringing their titles to the houses, titles to the cars. You're saying, I know what you're thinking. You said, Pastor, don't bother bringing the title of that Honda. <laughs> don't do anybody any favors. That's a classic, okay? But, but you know, people coming and they're just taking their savings and cashing them in. Shh, CDs, cash, shh, you know, uh, and just saying, look, if anybody is here and you're hungry, we'll feed you. If anybody is here about to get kicked out because you're behind on your rent, we'll pay it. If you're behind on your bills, we'll take care of it. That's almost foreign, isn't it? It happened. And I don't think it was just coincidence that God chose to authenticate that early church at Antioch by putting upon them a spirit of generosity that probably knocked the socks off of the elders back in Jerusalem. Agabus, 
prophets probably looked like John the Baptist. Head bare skin or beaver skin, all beard down to here. Kind of like that wilderness guy you see on the National Geographic. But anyway, I, I digress. Yeah, so he gets up and he says, there's going to be a famine. And it's going to sweep all over the area. There's going to be starving people, especially our brothers in Jerusalem. And you know historical records substantiate. During the reign of Caesar Claudius, around AD 45, 46, there were famines that swept through Palestine all the way down into Egypt. And the church of Jerusalem especially was hard hit because many of them had sold their possessions. They were poor. They were really strapped to have money to buy food. More so than anywhere else. And what did the church at Antioch do? Wow. On this ominous prophetic word, they were moved to an act of love. The Gentile Christians came to the aid of their Jewish brothers. And let me tell you something. Their unselfish, sacrificial love was dispensed and it was dispensed immediately. They're not like us Baptists. We'd have had to appoint two committees and a task force and then take it to three or four conferences and then we'd decide whether or not we're going to do an offering. Right away, the Spirit of God prompted it even before the famine hit. They said, let's start taking up an offering. We've got to be ready. And what did they do? They sent that generous offering all the way to Jerusalem by Barnabas and Saul. Let me tell you something. Sacrificial giving. Sacrificial, cheerful giving still is a clear indicator of a changed heart. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9.6, he says, but this I say, he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully, uh, uh, sows uh, sparingly will reap sparingly, but he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Let each person gives as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity. Why? Because God loves a cheerful giver. I don't think these Antiochian Christians had to have their arms twisted to give. I don't think Paul and, and Barnabas, Saul and Barnabas had to browbeat them to give. I believe these people were riding on the wave of the ecstasy of having been saved from the fiery pits of hell, having been transported from the domain of darkness, having been snatched out of the stony claws of Satan and taken into the kingdom of God and adopted as children of God and given the blessed hope of eternal life in heaven. Let me tell you something. When they contemplated what a wonderful thing God had done in their lives, they couldn't help but give. So what's our problem? Why are Christians today so <clears throat> conservative? I've always contended that no church would ever be without meeting its needs if all the members gave as Christians should give. Sacrificially and cheerfully. So what is our problem, brothers and sisters? Did Christ not suffer as much for you and me on the cross as He did for the Antiochian Christians? Did, did your salvation somehow cost less than theirs? 
Are we not excited about every opportunity to demonstrate the love of God in us to those who are in need? Listen, giving ought to be one of the most cheerful things that Christians do. In fact, if you have a problem giving, let me share something with you out of 1 John. I'm closing. 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. If you find yourself being a little bit stingy, a little tight-fisted, when it comes to giving to support the church and to support the kingdom causes, just listen to what John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. But whoever has these world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or tongue, but in deed and in truth. Listen, the Antiochian Christians were on fire for Jesus and they were given and they were giving gladly. That was the proof of a great transformation going on in their heart. Listen, the church is moving on. They've gone from Jerusalem throughout Judea. They've covered Samaria. I wish I hit one of those maps like they have plot in the, you know, in, in the political campaigns. You know, like this, this is where the color red represents the gospel. And it's sweeping over Jerusalem, over Judea. It's up in Samaria. And then over on the coast, it's moving up through Sidon and Tyre. It's moving up north. Boom, there goes Cyprus. It's over there down. Then, boom, up here at Antioch. Wow, look at it go. The church is on the move. They're standing at the threshold of history. And folks... We haven't even unleashed Paul yet. The church is on the move. And guess what? God wants to move His church today. I believe that with all my heart. He wants to propel His church out from the comfort of our facilities, out into the communities, to be in the face of those who are so broken and hurting and, and, and lost and needing Jesus. He wants us to go and He wants us to tell others about Christ. He wants us to give. To show our generosity to those who are less fortunate than ourselves. He wants us to be the church. Are you?